I was starting to think a little bit, uh, we've been kind of in this series talking about the church and talking about Acts and saying we need to go back 2,000 years, not 200 years to fix the problems that we see in the world around us. And if you don't think the church has problems right now, I've been trying to build a case for you that it does, that there are a lot of problems, that there are a lot of things that are wrong with the church. There are a lot of people that have been hurt by the church. There are a lot of people that have walked away from the church. All of those things are valid. I can't argue with many of them. I can't create a a case to talk people out of those ideas. A lot of them are valid. Um, And we really need to change. We need to reform as a church. And I've been talking about what it looks like to reform. And today we have this beautiful picture of the first church in its purest form without any of the extra nonsense added on top of it. Um, I'm saying nonsense and not C-R-A-P because uh, apparently uh, Facebook in our titles uh, uh, made that word go away. So... I can't use the word crap on, uh, crap on Facebook. Um, and I was, I was thinking about church buildings because <laughs> we've talked about how the church is not a place. It's not a building. It's people. We are the church, and we exist for the world. And I, uh, I started to think through kind of like time frames where churches were built. Um, my dad right now, I, many of you probably have no idea about this, but he is one of the premier church architects in the country. He's built... Uh, hundreds of church buildings for uh, some of the biggest and craziest, most awesome churches that exist. And um, he's kind of actually been one of those people that's like, uh, has a bit of a formula now at this point to, he could tell you the, the price per square foot, and he could tell you what kind of real estate they're looking for when they build a church, and he could kind of answer questions that you would never even think to ask when it comes to building something. And so I was thinking kind of through his lens, um, again, churches aren't Buildings aren't bad, they're tools. We need to make sure we use them as tools uh, for the kingdom of God. And, uh, you know, one of the things that the sort of the newest churches being built are all sort of warehouse, empty spaces, big boxes that we essentially put big stages in. They didn't always look like this, right? Even here, we have stages. Now, we have some other issues. We have lower ceilings than a lot of churches have, and we want to create space for you to be able to see people. I stand on a lower platform here, which you probably have never thought about, but it's intentional for me because I want you to understand, like, I'm, I'm not standing up on a stage as, like, the, the person you should be putting on a pedestal. I'm just trying to lead us from a place of humility. So this half step here just literally represents in my own brain that uh, I'm, not, I'm not up here or even higher. I would stand on that stool if I didn't feel like I would die. I'm down I'm down in this place. But, but you, if you thought about this, why are our churches right now built like theaters? Why are they built like music venues? Why are they built with huge stages with all the seats looking in one direction? Uh, why are they more like uh, live concert venues than they are like what we've seen in, in times past? What is it about what we're doing now as a church, uh, and I mean global church when I say that, that has caused us to build these, uh, these theaters uh, and these huge stages and these buildings like like this. By the way, love you, Dad. Just, you're doing a great job. I'm not, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> We're in a place where our modern form of worship, the stage, our worship, the type of music that we do, the, the speaking, is designed around this concept of uh, conveying information here and creating a space for us to worship together uh, in a a way that um, creates emotion in us, that uh, essentially we, we turn the lights down, we, we, we've set this all up, and there's a couple things it does really well. In fact, I would say that the worship temperature 
for a lot of Christians goes up because of some of the stuff that we do. And that's probably good. The singing part is much more engaging. It's much more experiential. That's not bad. I'm not saying that's bad. And to give speakers the chance to be able to speak to a crowd is generally good because we are going to talk about the gospel and we're going to help people learn. But this is a a form that we've kind of fallen into. And so there are some good things about it, but there's also sort of a a bad thing that comes around it with this idea that this is a show. And there's a lot of production value that happens here. And I want you to know, as we think about church, we don't really think as much about production as you think. We are committed to flexcellence is what we call it. We're going to do everything we can with what we have. We're going to use all of our tools as tools. Uh, But we're also not going to stress over the details of a production the way a live broadcast would. There's something happening in this room together that when we get together, that is really important. If you go back a a couple generations, you get to the colonials who uh, were super strong in theology and built their churches with steeples and built their churches to, uh, so if the stage is the thing for us, the pulpit was the thing for the colonial churches. You go back and look at the, the movements that happened during those times. You have these fire and brimstone preachers that go around and preach revival. The pulpit is the main thing. If you walk into that, the worship teams are off to the side. The cross is in the center, the pulpit is in the middle, and the, everything else happening is a side piece to what's happening to the message, the sermon. Right? You go back even further. You have cathedrals. Right, which cathedrals are kind of incredible. They're these beautiful uh, buildings that are supposed to bring us to a place of reverence. When you walk into a cathedral, you should feel small. And often those cathedrals, if you look at them from above, they're actually in the shape of a cross. Right? So there, there's some really interesting things happening in those cathedrals that created something in those people. But there was a terrible experience to worship in. The acoustics were, you couldn't hear what anybody was saying uh, up in the front uh, the sermons were often in Latin. You couldn't even understand what was actually being said. Um, there was essentially no thought given to what the experience of the worshiper was having, but essentially they did reverence really, really well. So they did reverence really well. You felt small. You felt like God was big. You came there to sort of pay penance or to go through the motions, and the experience was, was terrible. And then if you go back even further than that, you have a lot of churches happening in homes around a table. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The staff told me I'm never allowed to use this word again, but I'm going to do it anyways because I do what I want. Um, They had love feasts. I know a lot of people are like, that's such a weird way. I'm just going to talk about love feasts. So on Tuesday, they get mad at me. But actually, these were beautiful moments. The church itself was actually reaching out to some of the neediest people in the community. Those love feasts weren't designed around us, serving us. They were designed around lonely people, needy people, hungry people. You know, when Jesus tells the story about going out and filling the, f- the wedding banquet with the people from the back alleys and the people who were, you know, in the worst parts of town is what these love feasts were doing. They were caring for the poor. They were pulling people into a church that was happening in a house around a table. There's a lot to be learned from that. Our churches should still have a table represented. Our churches should still have a uh, a reverence to them. Our churches still should care about the pulpit. Our churches should still care about the experience of somebody when they come in to worship. But it's when one of these things gets out of of bounds or out of control that we start to see some of the problems that come from that. 
And what we see in the first church is a church that is sort of hiding from uh, persecution, and they're meeting in small places, okay? They also meet in large places, but they, really the main stuff that's happening, the real secret sauce to the church in the first century was happening around a table. You know, I would say our families used to happen around a table. The more that you study where American culture is going, and I'm as... Uh, I'm the worst at this too, is that we've moved from having family meals around a table every single night to having family meals in front of televisions or family meals that aren't all together or family meals that are on the go or if we're a family that makes room for a family meal once a week, twice a week, we're killing it, okay, compared to the rest of the country. There's amazing things that happen around Tables, And you're going to see that today, that there was something happening in this church around tables in small settings that was incredibly compelling community. It was winsome. It was inviting people into something. It was taking care of the people around them. It was focused on what the church should really be about. And the first church, what was compelling about it was that it was not segregated into rich and poor. It was not segregated into male and female. It wasn't the kind of place that forgave only their own. They forgave their enemies as well and prayed for them. Uh, It was not the kind of place that took care of itself. It had unbelievable generosity. It gave humanity to all people. It pulled in the people on the fringes of society into it. This was what was compelling about it. And when you look at that idea against the backdrop of the first century and against the sort of top-down control of the governments that were in place, the powers that were in place, the church stood out as a place that looked completely different than the rest of the world. I still think we can be shooting for this. I still think we can look different than the rest of the world. I think we need to be careful not to be swept up into movements that have names that don't mean anything or mean the wrong thing. I think we need to be careful about Uh, being considered one of many in a uh, movement that is dying for good reason. I think we need to focus back onto the idea that there is a first century call to the church that many churches have ignored or gotten rid of completely to have compelling community that looks a lot like what we see here in Acts. This is what the early uh, leaders of the time said about the church. They were frustrated by the church. They couldn't understand the church. They were mad about what was going on in the church. Here's just a few things. And if you went and looked back at all throughout all those ages, all those leaders, Roman leaders, uh, you know, essentially is what I'm going to give you a couple. But even beyond that, there were people that were like mad about what the church was doing early on. Uh, Emperor Julian said that the early church, uh, he complained about the early church. He called them uh, pagans and godless Galileans, which is a funny thing to call them because they were the first uh, sort of um, monotheists (laughs) around that time. They were the ones that were the monotheists, and they called them pagans because they didn't worship any of the Greek gods or any of the other Roman gods. They essentially were worshiping only Jesus. He said they um, they were really amazing at taking care of their poor, and not only their poor, but the poor in society, which made the leadership of the Romans look bad. He was mad about it. 
It was like those godless Galileans are so amazing at caring for the poor. They even not only just care for their own, but they care for ours too. And I'm mad about it because they make us look bad. Lucian of Somasada, I know as much about him as you do. He, um, he said of, of the early church, their founder has taught them to be like brothers and sisters and to despise their own privacy. They view their possessions as common property. There was something generous and winsome about this first church that it was so unbelievable that it made the leaders angry and it made the people all want to join and be part of it. It was compelling community. Last week we ended with uh, Peter preaching at the very end of his sermon. Uh, by the way, Brian, not in your, in your slides here. He, he finished with this, this phrase. He said, with any, many other words, he warned them. And he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So this church goes from 120 to 3,000, and it's compelling. Something's happening. The city is buzzing. And now there is uh, this idea that something else now needs to follow this moment what we've seen so far is just a moment and an experience. The Holy Spirit breaks into this room, equips all these people with the power, has Peter stand up and preach, 3,000 people join them, and now they have to organize in some way. Something has to happen in order for these 3,000 people to now become part of this church. Now, think about these 3,000 people from all over the place, all different languages, all different uh, you know, ways of living, all kind of being dropped into a church at one time, it must have been chaos. It probably felt a lot like a church plant early on. And those of you laughing, we're here early on. And you're like, no, it's still chaos. And I'm like, we're doing as better than we used to. Uh, I promise. And so that's where we pick this up. It's the birth of the church in this moment where the Holy Spirit comes, and then a picture of the purest form of the church that we have. And uh, I want you to know this first church happened public and privately. It looked like worship and fellowship and discipleship and care for the poor and isolated and lonely and awkward people. And it had a family feel. And of course, there was food. Let's get into verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And that word devoted, depending on what translation you're reading in front of you, could say they gave themselves to uh, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. There's food. First time we see food. We're going to see it again. Um, essentially, this church, the way that it operated was with devotion or giving themselves to the work that was happening all around them. Now, I don't think we always think about what this word means. The word devoted, the word devotion comes from this idea of giving up something, setting aside something, uh, earmarking something, putting something aside for a specific purpose or cause. When we say, hey, I'm devoting this amount of our budget to food, right? Again, food. Uh, to me, I'm setting this aside so that it can be used for this purpose. I'm giving this money to this, this cause. When we have an event and we say, hey, all the money's going to go to Haiti, 
we're devoting the money to Haiti so that we can all come together and do something together, right? When we devote something to something, we are giving it away in a certain sense. And the disciples, the way that this church started was a bunch of people who decided to give themselves away. Like we have to start with this idea that this devotion looks like a crazy amount of you giving yourself to what is happening all around you. And I don't, I don't say this. This could be self-serving, and I'm not trying to manipulate or be self-serving here. I understand that the next thing that comes out of my mouth could be like, and you need to sign up to work in the nursery. You should do that anyways, but I'm not, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, have you set aside your life to build the kingdom of God and to serve his gospel? And yes, I know that starts at home. I believe that does start at home. I don't believe you can give yourself away to ministry if you aren't giving yourself away to the family that you're called to uh, give yourself away to first. Husbands, give yourself away to your wives. Wives, give yourselves away to your husbands. Parents, give yourselves away to your kids. If you're single, this is why Paul talks about you being in the best position. You can give yourself away tomorrow to ministry without having to neglect anyone else in your life, and it is a gift, not a, not a problem. You're not a weirdo. It's a gift. Okay. This church devoted themselves, gave themselves away to what was happening around them. They set aside their lives, serving the bigger purpose in the world, the culture around them, the levers, the power, all the stuff. They gave themselves to what? They gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. They said, we are all in and set aside, holy, designed for, made to do these things together. So what were they, what were they focused on? The apostles' teaching. Um, they didn't have a New Testament. They didn't, couldn't open a Bible and read the stories that had already happened or the, the testimony of what Jesus had done. So they sat at the feet of the people who shared with them the gospel over and over and over, day after day after day. These people shared personal stories that they had with Christ. That is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be devoted to the story of Jesus and what it means in our lives and what it means to the world around us. It also means that often we are the only New Testament that people ever find themselves in contact with. They aren't hearing the story of Jesus from any other person that's going to do it justice until they're in our presence and we're sharing our story with them and about how our life has been transformed because of Christ. When we're sharing the gospel through our life with someone, it's going to include teaching. And that's what they were devoted to. These were people who had no background in being a Christian who got around the apostles and literally ate up everything they could, soaked it in, asked them to tell the story again and again and again and again until it was part of their own lives and something they could share with other people. It's not just listening to the podcast that we're talking about here. Although, listen to the podcast. Like, what are you doing? I don't even know what that was. Are you devoted to the apostles' teaching? Are you in the word of God, which is now fully formed and gives us the same stories that they were asking to be told? Are you sharing those with your kids? Are you being an apostle to other people that put themselves in your life? I mean, they were devoted to this. They were devoted to fellowship. 
to uh, what we call koinonia, actually. It's, so it's even more than this word that we think of, like fellowship. Like this isn't just like the softball team where we're getting together to do something that's, you know, the same. Or like, a, you know, uh, I now have a little club of parents that drop off and pick up at my kid's school that I stand around and talk with, which is, you know, fellowship. I'm, I'm shipping with the fellows. I don't know. This was, this was deep connection. This was life-on-life connection. This was, I share mine and you share yours and we're together in this. Like, this has to be present in a church for it to work. It can't just be us getting into an audience and taking in a show and then going home and living isolated from other Christians for the rest of our week. That's not what we're called to do. It's one of the reasons why we focus on small groups here and try to get everybody in one because that is actually where the real stuff is happening. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And you're like, this was communion. This was meals together around a table with each other. By the way, communion for the first century church was never what we do. This is a a remnant of what what we're doing in a church service is like a, a really... Uh, I don't want to say cheap version, but it is. It's sort of a knockoff version. It's the Wisconsin to Minnesota option, okay? I was told to lay off Wisconsin last week, and uh, now I'm just going harder. Um, They had full meals. That included, by the way, at these love feasts, it would include, uh, often they they would have a meal together, and then they would ask every person to stand up and share a hymn, or a song that they wanted to sing off their own, off the top of their own head, I don't think we could do a love feast the same way. I'm pretty sure nobody would come. Um, there was some deep stuff happening around a table, around food, around a meal together, and that's still a huge part of what it looks like to be a church. When we do communion here, we're making it doable in the service together as a way to, to kind of show what this looks like, but if for this to happen in Small groups and in your family's life uh, would be a better way of this existing. After a meal together with people or before a meal together with people, to be able to take some communion and share in Christ with those people around the table together would have been much more what this looked like. And to prayer. Again, relying on God. They were devoted. They gave themselves to this. Not only this, but they gave themselves to what else is coming. So here, here we go. The next verse, uh, 43, I think. Everyone was filled with awe, nope, JK, here we go, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, and when the church is working correctly, there is a picture of Jesus actively and moving in power, showing people what it looks like to know and follow God, again, they didn't have the New Testament, so their testimonies were the thing that drew people in and watching God work through these people was something that drew people in. It was winsome. Their community was a place for people to come and be, be part of. And then it says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. And I don't want to gloss over this because this was an incredibly diverse community. This was uh, a church that should have had nothing to unify around these were people from all over the place speaking all kinds of different languages. Even within the, the Jerusalem uh, contingent of people, the unity that was present would have been so hard because you had rich and poor, you had male and female, and these barriers 
were gigantic, right? As they welcomed in Gentiles, this barrier was gigantic. When Paul talks about in Ephesians breaking down this wall of hostility, he means it. There was hostility between these groups of people. And yet the church unified all of these people. I look around us today and I think, how can we not overcome the, you know, the, the separation between different groups of people politically or culturally or whatever because the church is the kind of place where we should be unified and not arguing over the, all this trash. We lose track of the gospel when we start to argue with people. We think we're going to win them to some sort of platform that we stand on when in reality we should just be dragging them to Jesus. The church didn't allow those things to break their unity, and we can't either allow that to happen. They didn't even have social media. Maybe that's the problem. It says this church sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. There was a radical amount of generosity they were building Jesus' kingdom, not their own. People giving out of, not people giving out of their leftovers, which I would say today is probably most people. I think most people probably make a financial plan and give out of their leftovers. They give to other people out of what they have left, out of their excess. Sometimes we make this decision with God, this, this sort of like um, back and forth with him. We say, hey, I'll give more if you give me more. Or when there's more to be had, then I'll increase what I, what I do for other people, what I do for the church, what I give, invest in, in uh, your kingdom. And to be honest with you, um, if you don't start looking at the idea that everything that you have is God's and that he has given it to you to steward, and this includes, like we talked about last week, our families, our finances, our gifts, our time, all of these things are things that we can now invest in the kingdom of God. If we don't start from the idea that these are all belong to Christ, and they're all destined for kingdom purposes, and then decide what we should give out of a heart of generosity, then we're doing it backwards. We should make decisions that cause us to budget differently. We should make decisions that a lot, portions of our time and our gifts and our talents and our energy to the kingdom that'll make us choose other things differently. And I understand that that's really hard, and I understand there are a lot of things that we fight over with that. We fight over the control that comes along with making our budgets and making our plans and serving ourselves and building our kingdoms when in reality this church wasn't thinking about any of those things. They were selling their retirement stuff. They were selling their fields and their uh, possessions and their classic cars and their to give to the community that was changing the world. They were radically, radically generous. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. It says every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. And here's where it gets interesting. So not only is this happening in people's homes, and by the way, Paul, as he writes letters, multiple other times says, hey, greet this church meeting in this person's house. It is perfectly valid for a church to be meeting in someone's house. It's actually done in the New Testament quite a bit. But also there needs to be a portion of church that happens in public. There is no house in Jerusalem that could hold 3,000 people. If all we do is meet in homes, then we exclude a lot of people who could be connected to what Jesus is doing. The modern movements of house churches are the most selfish things that I have ever seen in my life. They neglect very 
clearly neglect the corporate nature of the church, the fact that when we get together here, everyone's invited and it's done in public and you're welcome to be part of it and there maybe is another step towards being in a home with another, uh, another version of what this church is in a smaller place. It's why we both do Sunday morning gatherings and why we also do small groups because we believe tables are important and community is important and family is important, but we also believe that this public assembly needs to happen on a weekly basis and that it should be important to us as Christians. That's why we do it. And I know we've lost some of that after COVID. I know we have. I know it's become another thing sometimes. I know sometimes we choose brunch. I can't, I can't argue with it. Brunch is delicious. Sometimes we choose the Renaissance Fair. Sometimes we choose the State Fair. Sometimes we had a wedding for the family. The day before, there was a lot of activity. We don't want to come on Sunday. Sometimes we roll over and we go, just turn it on. Sorry, just put it on. That's why we're getting rid of the theme, by the way. I get it, and I'm empathetic to it. I can't tell you that every Sunday morning I enjoy waking up at 6.30, getting here by 7 most of the time, and trying to put my back into what's happening here. I understand that there's a, you know, uh, a calling to stay sleeping or a calling to do something different. And I want to tell you it's critically important that we do this together every Sunday. And what you may not be thinking about when you make decisions on whether you should show up here on a Sunday morning or not is that there are non-believers walking in this door who are here potentially because someone invited them or that they found their way into this church and now they don't meet you. The, if it's up to me to explain to every person that they should be part of this church and to welcome them into it, I'm a huge, huge gigantic bottleneck. But if as people come and join this church and as they find their way into here, they continue to meet you every Sunday because to you it's important to be here on a Sunday morning, then that is actually closer to what the first church looked like. They were meeting in public, in the temple courts. Every time they met, people were against what they were doing. They were fighting groups of people to be able to do that publicly. And it was important enough for them to do it, to continue to do it. And it was present in the first church, and it was present all the way through. If you find yourself drawn to being part of a house church, it is a selfish version of what the church looks like. It is not reaching to the world. It is not doing a whole lot of stuff that the first church was doing and that we are called to do as Christians. We have to have a public version of what we're doing held in public. And what I love about this is we are actually in public. We're not even in our own church, on our own property, inviting people to come to us. We're in their, their space. We're saying the community center where everybody knows and comes, this is where we're publicly declaring the gospel for Jesus. We're inviting people to come in and get to know our church. And you are a part of that every week. So as you make those decisions and as you go through some of that, that angst, that coming out of COVID, I'm not so sure that I want to be in this rhythm of going every Sunday morning or I have a sick kid or I, look, I get it. I'm not trying to shame anybody, but I'm just letting you know it's important. So they broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, that this is uh, necessary for us to be having, breaking down these communities into places that exist inside of our homes in smaller groups. This is 
why we do small groups. It's one of the really important reasons why we break down into these small groups. And this was descriptive of the first church, not necessarily prescriptive that we do it exactly that way, but something that we see present and we want to continue to try to see happen. And then the last verse, 47. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, the church is not growing almost anywhere in the United States. There isn't a denomination that's growing right now. More churches are closing than are opening. We have less Christians now than we had a generation ago and a generation ago and a generation ago. If we don't reform and look more like this, the church continues to shrink. It continues to go away. People continue to get further away from Jesus and further away from the gospel. Now, I think the church has always succeeded in these difficult times, that the soil of whatever the church came out of was a place where, you know, if it was difficult, if things were against it, it was a place where it flourished. I am not losing hope. I don't want you to think that right now I'm telling you that it's on us to, you know, change the direction of our country. It's on us to share the gospel with the people around us. It's on us to do community the way the first church did community. It's on us to be devoted to what is actually happening around us. Not to get sucked into all the garbage that's going on in our culture, but to focus on the gospel and Christ and building his church. This is the purest form. Over these generations, we have added on layer after layer after layer after layer. We have retreated into buildings on our own private property and said, you guys can come in if you do it the way we want you to. We've separated ourselves theologically from all the other churches over really stupid things. We've gotten ourselves into trouble by not calling our leaders to be humble, by not taking care of the problems that are really honestly there, by allowing people to be injured by the church and emotionally abused by the church. And all these things have created a place where people now, they don't, they aren't looking forward to being part of something. They aren't like invited into it and thinking, this is where I need to go to get my life together. These are people that love me and that will help me. The love feasts where we were reaching out to the poor and the isolated, these aren't, these aren't happening. If you go and knock on someone's door in your neighborhood, if you show up to someone's house unannounced, there's like turrets built into homes. They just automatically fire at you when you pull in the driveway. We got to change. We have to admit where we got it wrong. We have to tell people, you're right. We got to go back to something that looks a lot more winsome than it does right now. It says, bring your baggage, show up. If you're lonely, if you're isolated, if you don't have community in your life, if you aren't sure where to go, if you don't know what to do, if you feel like something's missing, but you can't put your finger on it, here's the place to find it. We have to be devoted to that. We have to care about it. We have to invest in it. We have to create it. It's not going to create itself. And the thing is, like, I feel like sometimes I'm preaching to the choir. First of all, you are here or watching at home. You're making an effort. Secondly, I know you've been through a lot in the last year and a half. Everyone has. I know you care about this. Right? I know I'm preaching to people that already want to see it happen. 
but I think we ought to double down. I think we need to bring other people into it. I think we need to open up our homes. I think we need to let people stop by unannounced. I think we need to make sure that this community is happening at our own tables. I think we need to invest it into our kids' lives. I think we need to say that stuff that I'm devoted to in this world is going to burn away and none of it's important. And we need to say this, being part of this, is what I need to be about. And I think we have a really great opportunity to do that. We're not an old established church. We don't have to pull layers off of everything. We don't have to recreate everything that's gone on. We just need to recommit ourselves to living the way the first church lived. We're committed to doing that as leaders. I'm committed to leading you by example in doing this. I would love it if you would make that commitment with me to make this church that kind of place. Let me pray. Jesus, I pray that this church would be winsome. That the people that make up this church would be devoted to growing, learning, listening to your spirit, reaching out to people who are lost and lonely and awkward and separated from God. That together we would make a difference in our own families' lives in the lives of our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers. God, that you would use us in ways that build your kingdom, that you would allow us to invest the things that we have to build your kingdom. God, that we would use our homes, our possessions, our time, our talents, our finances. God, that we would leverage all of these things to build your kingdom. And I pray, God, that the church, the national church, the global church, would grow again because people who are far from you would be won back into a relationship with you. God, that you would use us to draw them. That this would be the most welcoming, amazing place for somebody to show up. That we would commit ourselves to making sure your kingdom is built, your gospel is preached, that we ourselves are being used to reach people that you love and care about. Pray this church would be reformed to look more like what you've called us to. And that you continue to push us. That you push us towards what you want to do with this church. In Jesus' name.